Bible near you, you may wish to follow because I'm going to go down the text. In Luke chapter 13, we'll start at verse 22. Luke 13, verse 22. Jesus is on his way, and I'm sure his disciples are following him. They always do. Going toward Jerusalem. He's passing through cities and villages, and he's teaching the people as they would listen. And then someone asked him a question. Lord, are they few that are saved? Now, we don't know what might have prompted or motivated this question, but it's an important question. Maybe the man was motivated by egotism. Jesus said he was sent only to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. He didn't go to the Gentiles. And, of course, this man and all who heard him were of the Israelite nation. Maybe the man was thinking, well, now, God made a covenant with Abraham years and centuries ago that he would make of his descendants a great nation. He would bless that nation. And from those descendants, one would come into the world that would be a blessing to every family and every nation. And, of course, that was Jesus. And so perhaps he was thinking, well, yes, he, he wanted the Lord to answer, Lord, uh, yes, there'll just be a few saved, and they're all going to be of the Jewish nation. But the Lord didn't answer that way, did he? Maybe he was asking out of curiosity. Have you ever wondered how many people are going to be in heaven? We're told that they're about what, six billion people upon the earth at this time? And people are dying and being born continually. There's a, a turnover all the time. We don't know when the Lord's coming. Could come today. He could wait another thousand years or ten. We don't know. But from Adam and Eve and until the Lord comes, everyone who will have been born is going to stand before the Lord in judgment. We shall all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. Receive the things done in the body, whether it's good or bad. That's inevitable. But I wonder how many are going to be on the right side and how many are going to be on the left side. Maybe that's what the man was wondering too when he said, Lord, are they few that are saved? Now, this question has been answered by the Lord. Let me give you two other places. We'll come back to this. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, Enter ye in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many, M-A-N-Y, and many shall enter therein. But narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leadeth unto life, and few, F-E-W, shall find it. The many shall be lost, the few shall be saved. And that's what the question's all about, wasn't it? And that's what the Lord said there. We can also turn to Matthew 22 and verse 14. The Lord is telling a parable. It's about a rich king. His son's going to get married, so he's having a marriage feast for him. And so he sends his servants out to bring all the people in who will come. Invite everybody. It's going to be a big celebration. My son's getting married. But when we look beyond the parable, we see that this is God the Father. Jesus is that son 
And he wants as many people to come and to be a part of the bride. When the Lord comes again, he's going to take the bride unto himself. Well, a lot of people declined the invitation. They wouldn't come. There were some who came, and when the, uh, the king went into the wedding parlor, we'll call it, there was a man who did not have on the wedding garments. And the king asked him about this man who was speechless. He couldn't answer. The king said, cast him out. And that is a, a picture of someone who does not have the right character. The one who is not living like the Lord wants us to live. And that's verse 14. He says, many shall be called, but few chosen. Many called. We're called through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. But few are chosen. I hope this will be a lesson to make us all think about our relationship with God. Make us think about the way we're living. We know that this is not the Lord's wish that only a few will be saved. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and come unto a knowledge of the truth. God sent his Son to save us. And he wants us all to be saved. Also in 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to you, word, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come under repentance. We know what the Lord's desire and wish is. And he's telling us what the truth is. Everybody in this assembly could be among the few. Everybody in Peach County could be among the few in Georgia and so forth. But it's up to us. It's an individual responsibility. The Lord doesn't want any of us lost. But isn't it a challenge to be among the few? Let me give you two Bible examples. How about Noah? Noah found favor in God's sight. The rest of the men, besides Noah's family, didn't. We read there in Genesis 6, I think it's about verse 5, where the thoughts, the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. I mean, there were no lapses when he thought something good now and then, but continually they were thinking evil. And they'd gone beyond the point of God's mercy and God's long-suffering, God's love. He decided to destroy and start all over again his human race and to begin with Noah. First Peter 3 and 20 says, When the long-suffering of God waited... In the days of Noah, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save you. Noah and his family were saved from the evil, not the flood. They were saved through the waters of the flood from the evil. But there were only eight. Few. Whitcomb and uh, Morris wrote a book called The Genesis Flood. They have estimated from their studies that there must have been 70 million people who lived upon this earth up until the time of Noah. How many were living at the time of the flood? We don't know. But there were some 1,500 years from the creation of Adam and Eve until the time of the flood. 
There was time for a lot of people to be around, to have lived, and to have lost their souls. There's a challenge that we can be among the few. You think about the children of Israel. God sent Moses to be the leader to bring them out of Egyptian bondage. They were slaves there. And by God's power, they were brought out safely. In about three months, they got to Mount Sinai. And there they received the Ten Commandment law, all the rest of the law. The priesthood was set up. The tabernacle was constructed. They were there about a year, and then they started up toward the promised land. God had promised Abraham and the other patriarchs this land was to be theirs, the descendants. When they got near the border, God said, Moses, I want you to send a man from each of the twelve tribes to go into the land and bring back a report, spy it out. Come back and tell us about the cities and the villages and the strength and the, and the vegetation, all of that. Forty days later, they came back with not one report, but with two. Ten of the twelve tribes said, we can't do it. There are giants up there and in their sight and in our own sight. In comparison, we're like grasshoppers. We just can't make it. Let's go back to Egypt. At least we were alive there, though we were slaves. There were two men, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb of the, ten, of the twelve tribes. Twelve men of the twelve tribes. They said, we can do it. We've got God on our side. God brought us out of Egypt. He can take us into his promised land. In fact, I think it was Caleb who said, well, it'll be just like bread to us. You've heard the expression, that's a piece of cake. You know, something so easy you can do, that's a piece of cake. My son-in-law, not Paul, but another one, uses that expression. Well, that's kind of like what they were saying in the Bible. They'll be just bread to us. But all the people went with the ten spies that brought the evil report. And because of that, God said, you're going to have to wander 40 years in the wilderness until all of this generation dies out from 20 years of age on up, except two men, Joshua and Caleb. Now they counted these men. There were 603,550. 603,550 and only two of the men were going to be allowed to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And it would seem as though the wives of those others would have not been able to as well. That generation died out in the wilderness. We'll just think of two out of 603,550 and probably many more than that. That ought to be a challenge that we can be among the few. It's up to you and it's up to me. Now, we're back to the text, Luke 13, verse 24. The Lord said, in answer to the question, Lord, are they few that are saved? Strive to enter in by the narrow door. And we'll pause right there. Strive to enter in He's talking about salvation, isn't he? The narrow door. We've already referred to him when he spoke about entering into the narrow gate, straightened his way that leadeth unto life. Strive. That is a key word in the Lord's answer. What does it mean? Well, it means to struggle. It means to fight 
to buy. It means to contend earnestly. One of our Greek lexicons define it this way. To endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain something. Endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain something. That's what that word means. The Greek word is agonizomai, and I just mentioned that because we get our English word agonized from it. Agony. And that's the way it's translated. We'll look a little bit later in one place. It gives us an idea of what the Lord had in mind for those who want to be saved. Strive to enter in. Endeavor with strenuous zeal. Now, let me pause a moment. The Lord is not teaching, and I'm not teaching, that we can earn our salvation. That we can be so good and struggle so hard that we deserve to go to heaven. That's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 8, For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. And so, even though the Lord says, if you want to go to heaven, you're going to have to strive, he's not saying you're going to earn it. As hard as you strive, you're not going to earn one thing to get you into heaven. That's just the Lord's will. Telling us how we ought to live the Christian life and try to make our way into heaven that he's provided for us. Strive to enter in. Let me give you one Bible example and another outside. Well, both of them from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Paul said, Every man that striveth, there's the word, in the games, exerciseth self-control in all things, but they do it for a corruptible crown, but we for an incorruptible. They had a laurel wreath for the winner. Of course, that would fade away for too long. Paul's talking about our crown of heaven, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the Bible calls it, that is available for us. But he says, every man's striving in the games. Well, some of you may have played football in high school, basketball or track or whatever. In fact, it's just been a few weeks since we've been seeing the... Uh, 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney, Australia. And if you had the news on, you're bound to see a little of that. You know these young men and women were all striving. You cannot get in the Olympics without meeting a certain standard. And the man or the woman that comes in last in the Olympics should be commended because he took so much to get there. We're talking about striving physically as an athlete. Let me give you some uh, other examples. Back on May the 4th, 1956, 54, May the 6th, 1954, Roger Bannister was the first man to run a mile in less than four minutes. He was an Englishman from Oxford. There may have been people down through the centuries that had run faster, but they didn't have a watch to time it. And his was time. Three minutes. 59.4 seconds. Just barely less than four minutes, but it was less. And since then, there have been a lot of other folks, well, I don't know if I can say a lot, there have been others who have also run that fast. They have run faster than four-minute mile. The latest that I know about, J. 
James Ovet. This was in Oslo, Norway. He ran the mile in three minutes and 46.32 seconds. That's about 12 and a half seconds faster than Bannister wrote, read it, uh, ran it. Now you know these men had to be striving to do that. We've all heard about Ben Johnson. He's a Canadian. He has been described or is described as the fastest human of all time. Now, I don't think he gets in the category of running the miles, but he does the 100 meter. And his record, running 100 meters, that's more than 100 yards, you know. I think the 39 inches in a meter, 36 in a yard. And he ran 100 meters in 9.79 seconds. Nobody's beaten that record yet. You cannot run that fast. You just run. You've got to strive. There are a number of other examples that could be cited. You understand that. But let me give you one from the Bible that has reference to Jesus. The night before his crucifixion, he came with the disciples to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed three times. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Three times he prayed that. Luke tells us about three things that indicate how much the Lord was agonizing. One is that an angel was dispatched from heaven to come and strengthen him. He's going to die the next day. The next morning he's going to be nailed to the cross. Jesus was praying, is there any other way, Lord, so that I don't have to die and bear the sins of all mankind? And then we read where he, being in an agony, and there's our word, prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That was the agony Jesus experienced in the garden that night. He is a man of prayer. And he knew it was his mission to die for your sins and my sins and for the sins of all mankind. And he was willing to do it. He was just wondering, could we just avoid this? But he willingly, he said he voluntarily laid his life down and raised it up again. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. That's when his sweat became his blood pouring out of his, the pores of his body. Now that's agonized. That's striving. Let's move on. Lord, are there few that are saved? Strive to enter in by the narrow door. Notice, for many, notice the word many, M-A-N-Y, for many shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. Now, who's he talking about here? He's making a distinction between striving, that's the way you get in, seeking won't make it. Are you striving? Are you seeking? Am I striving? Am I seeking? He's talking about many shall seek to enter. But he's certainly not talking about uh, the drug pushers. The impenitent murderers, 
the fornicators, the homosexuals, any of these that are impenitent, they're, they're not interested in going to heaven. They're not seeking, are they? Well, who does the Lord have in mind who are seeking? Well, you would think at least people who worship the Lord would be seeking. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he's talking about religious people. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. But there's the key. And there's the answer. It's the Father's will that we must do, not just say, Lord, Lord. Uh, I think that sort of cancels out deathbed repentance. People think, well, before I die, if I have a breath left, I'm going to ask the Lord to save me. That won't do any good, will it? And then the Lord goes on to talk about the day of judgment. Many shall say to me in that day, talking about the judgment day, many again shall say to me in that day, did we not prophesy by thy name? And by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? Well, that must be religious people. Who would be doing that but the religious folk? In the name of the Lord, that is by his authority. But what does the Lord say to these folks, these religious folk? I never knew thee. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Now the word iniquity simply means lawlessness. It doesn't have reference to people who are murderers and adulterers and these worst sins that we can think of. It's anybody that does not abide by the will of God. Depart from me. All you workers of lawlessness. What is God's law? Well, it's revealed right here. Are we obeying it? Am I obeying it? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Many shall seek and shall not be able. They're seeking by their own ways. A lot of folks think, well, if I'm sincere, I'm going to heaven. I'm afraid you can't go to heaven without being sincere. But that in itself won't do it. I had a teacher at uh, OU, an uh, English teacher. In fact, he was the housemaster where I stayed in a dormitory. And he told us in class one time that he didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the Bible, but he had his own moral code. Well, that's not going to do any good on the day of judgment or when he dies. We're going to be judged by the word, not by somebody's moral code. I think he was a respectable citizen, good to his family. He was not a Christian. Well, when once the master of the house has risen up and is shut to the door, and you stand outside knocking, that means when that door is shut, that's the end of God's grace period. We're living in a time of grace. All of us, everybody, has an opportunity to obey the gospel. To come to the Lord. But once the door is shut, that's the end. Well, when does that door shut? Well, one of two cases. When I die or when the Lord comes again. Should he come before I die, that'll be the, when the door shuts. But when I die, if he hasn't come yet, that's when the door shut for me. 
because we're going to be judged right then. That's not the final judgment. Don't misunderstand me. But we're going to know right then where we're going to be in paradise, where Lazarus, Abraham, and the others are, or whether we're going to be where the rich man is in Luke 16. Lost. Tartarus. Hades is a realm of all departed spirits, but it's divided into two sections, and nobody can cross over. You can't die and then go to purgatory and wait until you've had all your sins purged and then cross over. No crossover. No second chance. We go to paradise, we know we're going on to heaven. We're comforted there. We go to Tartarus, we're lost forever. When that door is shut, we're going to know where we are. But we can know before the door is shut because we can know what the Lord wants us to do and do it. I don't believe the Lord's going to allow any arguments at the day of judgment. And maybe that's what he's trying to tell us here. After that door is shut, you're on the outside and you're knocking and you're saying, well, did we not uh, eat and drink with thee? And didn't you teach in our streets? The Lord said, I, I never knew you. Some might think, uh, well, we had the Lord's Supper at least once in a while with him. Did we not eat and drink with the Lord? We came to Bible class now and then. To, uh, did you not teach in our streets? The Lord said, I never knew. And that's the sad part of this whole story. Lost and lost forever. Because he says, they will be cast where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping has reference to the grief, the gnashing of teeth, the rage that, a pe that people will experience in the lost condition. But could I appeal to everybody who's not obeyed the gospel to do that? To those who have, or am I striving to do God's will? That's what we need to do. Didn't Jesus say, except ye believe that I am he, you shall all die in your sins? John 8, 24. He wants us to believe that he is the son of God. That he came from heaven, died on the cross, to bear all of our sins, my sins, your sins. It's those sins that separate us from God. We need forgiveness. But God was willing to come down in the form of the Son and to bear our sins so we could have those forgiven. But we need to believe that he is the Savior. We need to believe that so much in him that it will change the way we live, repent of our sins, we need to be willing to confess our faith in him before men and women. We need to be baptized. Now this is immersion, not sprinkling or pouring. There's just one baptism in the Bible. We need to be immersed with him for this reason. For the remission of our sins. It's not the Bible baptism where a person says, I've been saved and then he's baptized. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. And that baptism won't do any good. And now, if you don't believe me, turn, you don't have to do it now, Acts chapter 19. There are about 12 men there who had been immersed, had been baptized, but it was for the wrong purpose. Right action, wrong purpose. They had to be taught and done again. Baptized, immersed again. So, baptism is an immersion, it's in water, and it's for the forgiveness of one's sins. That's biblical. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So why do people say, when you believe you're saved, 
and then you can be baptized if you want to. That's not what Jesus said. And it's so plain. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I believe these folks, and I'd like to think I know, that all of us who are here today believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he came and died on the cross for all of us. He wants to save us all. He says, come unto me all ye that labor and heavy labor. That's everybody. And I'll give you rest. Rest unto your soul. But it's up to you. He's waiting. He, he wants you to come. The angels want you to come. We're praying that you will come. If you have any questions that you need to look at before you come, please give us an opportunity to talk with you about the Bible. We have a song of invitation. If you're subject to the invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing?